Well, let's turn to Mark chapter 11 then. Matthew 21 this morning, uh, Mark chapter 11 tonight. And this morning we began to uh, look more closely, didn't we, at a a detail uh, in this incident, which at first glance seems to be of no real consequence. Nothing more than an incidental detail in the story. But in fact, it is the detail on which everything hinges. It's the detail which unlocks the meaning of this great event. And it's the fact, the detail, that when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he had come to the city. Uh, He would teach a little and he would heal a little. But he had come this time primarily to die for the sins of his people and to rise for their justification. And that as he approached the city for these purposes, he makes a conscious decision to enter the city on the back of a young donkey. We said that it wasn't a coincidence. We said it wasn't just how it turned out. He didn't just see a donkey on the side of the road and think, well, might as well go in on that. Uh, The disciples didn't suggest it to him. Nobody else in the crowd. He, he may well have made, we're not sure, he may well have made prior arrangements for this donkey uh, to be made available by the master who owned him. But whatever, uh, Jesus makes this decision to enter the city on the back of a donkey. Why? What was behind that decision? Well, we said two things this morning, didn't we? By riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, Jesus was unmistakably declaring his identity. God had promised through prophets, that he was going to send his people a king, a king like no other, a king that had never been seen before, and a king that would never be seen again, a king who would come to fully, finally, decisively, conclusively deliver his people from everything that would harm them, everything that would ruin them, to deliver them from their enemies, and a king who would then, having delivered his people, rule over them. But in a gracious, edifying, productive way. A king who would bring his kingdom into their lives. And that would be seen in joy and peace and love flowing through them. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to declare to the people, guess what? That prophecy is fulfilled today in your sight. Your king has come. Your king is amongst you. The one the prophet told you to expect has arrived. And it's me, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm not just a carpenter. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a healer. I am God's anointed king and deliverer. Because you see, Zechariah, 500 years before the events of Palm Sunday, as we call it, 500 years before that, Zechariah was one of those prophets who had said, this king is coming. Look out for him. Pray for him. Expect him. And he'd added a little detail. 
that this king would make himself known by riding into the capital city, by riding into the, the, the heartland, if you like, the headquarters of his kingdom, so to speak. He'll come riding on the back of a donkey. And so with just days to go before Christ fulfills the mission on which he has been sent, Jesus said, didn't he, in John's gospel, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I've come to do his will. What was the Father's will? What was this task he gave Jesus to perform? To die and to rise again. And through that, to deliver his people and to bring his kingdom into their lives. That's on, we're on the cusp of that now. That's about to happen. And so it's time that people were left in no doubt as to who Jesus really is. It's time to tell the secret. It's time to dispel the confusion. It's time that people knew that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Jesus wanted people to know who he is, because until we know who he is, we cannot benefit from his ministry. Until we know that he is God's appointed, anointed, commissioned saviour, then we're not going to trust in him. Until we know that he is the king God has crowned over all creation, then we will not bow before him. And Jesus revealed himself clearly that day. And so I simply ask you tonight, have you trusted in him as your saviour? He is the only one who can help you. Nobody else meets the requirements to be your saviour. Saviour from what? Well, that's coming up. But get this in your mind, at least at this point. He is the only one who can give you what you absolutely cannot do without. And he is the king God has appointed. You may want to be the king of your own life. You may want to rule. Well, you may well want to, you may well try to, but you haven't got the power and you haven't got the authority. Christ is the king, whether you like it or not. And you must bow before him, or it is to commit ultimate treason. And we have a responsibility, don't we? Jesus isn't riding around the streets of Cardiff on a donkey today, is he? Wouldn't make much difference if he did, because the people of Cardiff haven't got the Old Testament scriptures. They wouldn't know what the significance of that was. And Jesus isn't going around, well, I suppose you could say he is going around preaching, but in, in one sense, he's not going around Cardiff preaching. He's not going around Cardiff telling people today who he is. Well, he is, but he does it through his church. He does it through his people. And so in that sense, it's our responsibility today to make his identity known. I wonder sometimes, do we presume that people are not interested that we presume that people couldn't care less. Now, we know unless God does a work of grace in the life, people are not going to trust in Jesus. But we almost have the impression people are just not bothered. People wouldn't listen. And yet it's amazing very often that people are curious about this Jesus and why all these people gather in a building like this or whatever. Who is he? Why don't we tell them? Why don't we make his identity clear? And that's our responsibility, isn't it? It's not to promote a church tradition. 
It's not to hold up a confession of faith as much as these things are valuable and so on. It's to uh, introduce people to a person, the Savior and the King that God has sent to bless. So that's the first reason Jesus uh, entered Jerusalem in that way, on the back of a young donkey. It was to declare his identity, I am the Savior King prophesied uh, by the, uh, in the Old Testament. And then secondly, we said this morning, he entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to reveal his character, to say, I am this king, and let me show you what kind of king I am. And to put it in a nutshell, I'm not the kind of kings you would expect. I'm not like ordinary human kings. I haven't come to seek glory from you, although I will receive that. But I haven't come to uh, seek glory from you. In fact, to come here, I have surrendered my glory. I have veiled it. I have hidden it in order to come into this world as part of the human race to redeem it. I've stooped down. I haven't lifted myself up. That's coming. He's going to be exalted. But in Philippians, he steps down before he's highly exalted. Now, what king do you know that in order to reign over his people, the first thing he does is stoop down and veil his glory to come amongst them as one of them to help them. And human kings require people to serve them, don't they? We're told, for example, that when there's a war and the British army goes off to fight, they're going in the service of the monarch. Well, our king came to serve. And he had so much to say about that in the Gospels. His desire was not that people would give their lives for him on the battlefield. Rather, he gave his, his life for his people on the battlefield. There was the cross of Calvary. I've come to give to you. I've come to pour out upon you. And I've come to give primarily my life a ransom for you. Jesus Christ is, as the hymn I quoted this morning, the servant king. Oh, he is a king. He does rule. He does reign. <laughs> and it's wonderful, the balance in Christ. Nobody else could get this balance the way he does. He's a king who absolutely destroys his enemies. But he's a king who lavishes blessing upon his subjects. That's the message of, the, of the, the scriptures, really. Here's Christ. You've got to deal with him. And there's no middle ground with him. He'll either save you or he'll destroy you. He'll either be your redeemer or your judge. He completely obliterates his enemies, but he gloriously delivers his subject. And we said human kings, they want to impose burdens, don't they, upon people, uh, taxation and that kind of thing. And you remember when the people wanted a king uh, before God gave them a king, <laughs> when they wanted Saul, uh, or they wanted a king and God gave them Saul, but they wanted a king and God told Samuel, warn them what it'll mean, that he'll want their sons and daughters for battle. Uh, he'll take their lands to give to his um, nobles. Uh, he'll want money from them for his armies and so on. He'll take, he'll take, he'll take. He'll be a burden, he'll oppress. But not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to give with an open hand. 
Yes, he'll receive things from you, but first he gives things to you, and we give to him in response to his first giving to us. And primarily, what does he give to us? Himself. He gives himself to his people. What a king. A king who comes meekly, humbly, to reveal that he's not, he hasn't come to oppress. He hasn't come to tread down. He hasn't come to selfishly exploit. But he's a king who's come humble, gentle, compassionate, selfless, loving. Gentle and lowly in heart. Why wouldn't you want a king like him? on the throne of your heart this evening. If you rule, you'll destroy yourself. If he rules, he will liberate you. And we said that we want to have the fragrance, I'm sure, of Christ by gently, humbly serving one another. And not simply in practical deeds. You know, when we talk about serving one another, we tend to think of that in means of inviting people. can't do it at the moment, of course, but inviting people around for meals or whatever. That's good. That's a sign of service. But we serve one another by bearing with one another. We serve one another by being ready to forgive one another at the drop of a hat. We serve one another by giving way on occasions to one another. May we be ready to serve others the way Christ serves us. (laughs) I can't think of any other religion, in inverted commas, where the God of that religion serves his worshippers. But that's Jesus Christ, still today, in glory, serving his church. He's head over all things for the church. His heart is for his church. His thoughts and eyes are here caring in a shepherdly pastoral way for his people. What a king. So he came in in that way to declare his identity. He came in in that way to reveal his character. And thirdly and finally, he came in in that way to explain his mission to make it clear who he was, what he was like, and why he had come. Now, it seems, doesn't it, from the details we're going to look at now, that the people got the message. They seemed to grasp what he was trying to tell them. He revealed himself. He presented himself to them as their king. The king that had been prophesied for so many years in the Old Testament. Uh, And we uh, read... Uh, If we look at Matthew uh, 21, back in the passage we read this morning, uh, and in verse 8, it's also in Mark, so we can have a look at it there, uh, that they did seem to receive Jesus as their king. Because we read in Matthew 21, verse 8, and it's also here in Mark uh, 11 and verse 8. So verse 8 in both chapters. That when Jesus rode uh, on a donkey, those who had come up with him from elsewhere to Jerusalem did something very interesting. They spread their clothes out on the road. Now what was all that about? Well, the Jews would do that at the coronation of a king. 
And you read when you go home uh, in 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu uh, is anointed the new king and the people set their clothes down before him. It was a very symbolic act because what would happen, the clothes would be set down on the road and either the king would walk over those clothes or for Jesus here, he would ride over those clothes on the back of a donkey. And it was a very powerful symbolic act. The people were represented by their clothes in a sense and here's the king walking or riding over the clothes and the people are saying, you are over us. We are under you. We are the clothes as you ride over. So by spreading their clothes out on the road in that way, they were demonstrating their acceptance of Jesus as their king. You're our king. We give ourselves to you. We put ourselves under you. We accept your authority over us. Jesus had also presented himself to them as their deliverer hadn't he? The Redeemer who was coming, a king who was going to rescue and reign. And it's interesting that the people cried out to it all, those who'd come up with him on the journey to Jerusalem. They cried out, didn't they? As we are in Mark, 20, Mark 11, so on even verse 9, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. There it is. You remember I said this morning, the prophecy was that this king, when he came, he'd be a descendant of David. And so here they are saying it, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now they didn't make that little song if they sang it. They didn't make it up for the occasion. They borrowed those words from an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 118. And it was one of the Psalms uh, that the Jews uh, used to refer to the Messiah. They understood it referred to the Messiah, as all the Psalms do to one degree or another. And it was a Psalm that they believed was really to be kept for the day that the Messiah came, when you could actually welcome him with real meaning. And so they're saying, at last, we can get this Psalm out. We can turn to this in the hymn book, as it were, because here he is. And so they're putting their clothes on the road. You're our king. Singing the psalm that was reserved to sing to the Messiah on the day of his coronation. They're saying, you're our Messiah. In Matthew 20, when they call him the son of David. The son, meaning the, the, the descendant. A messianic title. And they called out to Jesus to save them. Rescue us. Deliver us. That's what this king was coming to do. And they say, Jesus, you rescue us. You help us. You deliver us. How do I know they did that? Well, look in their, their song from the psalm. They say, Hosanna. Hosanna, Jesus. That's a Hebrew word which means save us. And it means save us now. So that Look at their behavior. Look at the words they use. It all seems so promising. They've got it. They understand it. And they've accepted it. Jesus has said, I'm your king who has come to deliver you. And they say, yes, you are our king. And please deliver us now. Jesus must have been thrilled. What a welcome. What an acceptance. What a mandate. 
What prime minister or president wouldn't want a welcome like this on the day that they're presented to the people that they're going to rule? You'd think Jesus was ecstatic. Well, actually, Luke tells us in his account, Jesus wept. He wept. And the Greek word translated wept there doesn't mean he shed a few silent tears. It means he screamed in heartfelt anguish. Because he knew that for all the fuss and the celebration and the ecstasy and the noise and the clamour, they didn't really want him. They weren't really submitting to him as their king. And they weren't really after the salvation he had come to provide. And he knew that in a few days' time, he would be rejected. This king, they would crucify. Instead of seating him on a throne, they'd hang him to a cross. And when they were asked, will you have him? Do you want him as your king? We have no king but Caesar. They'd rather a Roman overlord than this. Jesus of Nazareth. You see, they had misunderstood, didn't they? Exactly the king Jesus was going to be, the kingdom he was going to establish, the Messiah, the deliverer, the salvation he was going to provide. They got that he was the king, they got that he was the deliverer, but they didn't understand the kind of kingdom he'd come to establish and the kind of salvation he had come to provide. How do we know that they'd misunderstood? Well, again, the way they responded to him is revealing, if only you know the background and the historical background. Because Mark tells us here, verse 8, that when Jesus got up on this back of a donkey and so on, we read that as well as people spreading their clothes on the road, acknowledging him as their king, we read that others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And John goes further and says that they actually waved these palm branches before the Lord as he travelled. There were plenty of palm trees uh, in Jerusalem at that time, especially on the road which leads there from the Mount of Olives that Jesus was travelling. The question is, why did they do that? Why did they wave palm branches? Well, more than 150 years before Christ was born, Jerusalem had been captured by the Seleucids. And their king was called Antiochus Epiphanes. So here's Jerusalem under occupation from the Seleucids and their king Antiochus Epiphanes. And the Jews are not happy about that. Uh, and a man called Judas Maccabeus and his brother Simon Maccabeus decide to do something about it. And they launch a rebellion. They instigate an uprising against the rule of the Seleucids and they won. And the Seleucids were driven out of the city and Jerusalem was liberated. And Simon Maccabeus entered Jerusalem after the Seleucids had been driven out of the city. Oh, and he received a rapturous welcome. They all cheered and 
got excited when he entered the city. And what did they do? They got so excited, as part of the celebrations, as Simon Maccabeus entered the city, the people got palm branches and waved them before him. And from that day on, the waving of palm branches became synonymous in the minds of the Jewish people with victory over an enemy who had occupied their land. Would you believe the palm branch was the unofficial symbol of the independent Jewish kingdom? Which, of course, didn't actually exist at that time, but uh, they had it in their mind. And you see what the Jews are doing. The Jews are thinking, we are now, in the days of Jesus, we are now in exactly the same position our forefathers were 150 years ago. We, too, have been conquered by a foreign power who have invaded our land, occupied it, and rule over us. Jerusalem is under foreign control. The only difference is then it was the Seleucids, now it's the Romans. And here comes Jesus in their minds, just like Simon Maccabeus, coming to drive the enemy out. Only they think, of course, Jesus is coming to drive the Romans out. Here is Simon Maccabeus Mark II. Here is our deliverer of our century come to give us our freedom from our foreign overlords. Here comes, he's marching on the city. You know, when there's going to be a rebellion, civil war or whatever, what do you hear? Oh, they're marching on the capital. And you'll have someone at the front, don't you, a, a, a ruler, a leader then who wants to rule, and all the people will get behind him, and they'll march on the capital, and they'll want to claim, for example, if it was our, you know, the UK, they'd want to claim Downing Street or Buckingham Palace or something like that. They're coming, or White House in America. Here they come. We've had enough. We're not going to put up with these rulers any longer. We're not going to be downtrodden any longer. We're not going to be ruled by foreign overlords anymore. We're going to kick them out. We're going to take the capital. We're going to occupy the seat of power. And that's what these people think Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is all about. He's marching on the capital. He's going to take Jerusalem. He's going to seize it from the Romans. And he's going to reign over a national, independent political kingdom of Israel. Just like the one that David and Solomon had had. The golden age is coming back. Christ is going to reign in Jerusalem and all the world will stand in awe of the king of the Jews. And would you believe that even our Lord's disciples were laboring under that misapprehension even after the resurrection. We read Acts 1 verse 6. When they had come together, Jesus and his disciples, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So when's it going to happen then, Lord? We've marched on the capital. It all looked a bit as if it was going a bit pear-shaped because you were killed, but we see now you rose again, so it's all right. So when are you actually going to set up the kingdom then? When are you actually going to um, declare yourself this king of a new political kingdom of Israel. That was the idea. That's what they thought. And nothing could have been further from the truth. And Jesus seems to have anticipated how his coming would be perceived. And he takes action 
to try and correct their misguided thinking. And he, so he chooses to enter Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. That was significant because the Old Testament kings of Israel, they sometimes rode on a donkey. It wasn't a novel act for a king, but they only ever rode on the back of a donkey in peacetime. When Israel was at war, her king would ride about on a horse, and a very impressive one at that. A king on a horse meant the nation was at war. A king on a donkey meant the nation was at peace. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, he was making a very powerful statement. I am your king. I am your redeemer. I'm a servant king. And I come to make peace. He was not coming to engage in armed conflict. He was not coming to take the Romans on in a final, decisive, bloody battle for the city of Jerusalem. This was the prince of peace who had come to the city of peace, Jerusalem. And he had come for the purpose of making peace. He was coming to fight, but not to fight a physical battle on a, a, an earth earthly battlefield. He was not coming to crush enemies you could see and touch. He was not looking to drive the Romans out of the city. He was coming to do battle for his people, to set them free from their sins. And he would do it not through a magnificent military maneuver, but through simply hanging on a wooden cross under the burden of our sins and his father's wrath against those sins. The salvation he had come to provide was a salvation from sin. He had come to set his people free from their bondage to sin so that they could serve God and love God and worship God. That was their big enemy. That was their problem. That's what needed to be driven out. That's what needed to be conquered. That's what needed to be put to bed. That's what needed to be engaged and destroyed was sin, their natural inclination to sin and the consequences of that. That's what Christ had come to deal with. That was the Jews' problem. And that's your problem too. You might have got many problems tonight. I'm sure we all have many problems. But your real problem, that problem for which you must have a solution, is the problem of your sin. That you have a natural inclination to do the exact opposite of what God commands. That you have a natural desire and interest and taste for doing what God says we are not to do and not doing what God says we must do. You see, we come out of our mother's womb and we're fresh and ready to disobey, fresh and ready to rebel, fresh and ready to serve not God but ourselves. That's our default setting. We're not taught to be bad. All right, societal factors have a part to play in upbringing and so on. 
But in a sense, they only speed up the process that's already at work in our hearts to rebel against God. A factory setting, you know, a, a phone, a mobile phone. And you get a factory setting. In other words, this is how the phone is before anyone does anything to it. Before you put your, 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 your contacts in there. Before you set the time. Before you do this. Before you do that. Before you choose your background. Before you choose your ringtone. Before you choose your text alert or whatever. The factory setting. This is how it comes out. And now you can work on it. Well, our factory setting, the factory setting of our heart is rebellion against God. And what God does by his spirit is get hold of us and change the factory settings. So that that same phone now does new things. And he comes and he gets hold of our heart and changes its factory setting. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to deal with the consequences of our rebellion and to change our pattern of rebellion deals with the problem that the rebellion has caused and then seeks to change the rebellion into service so that there are no consequences to deal with. That's what he came to deal with at the cross. That's the salvation he offers you tonight. Is that what you want from Jesus? Because if that's what you want, he is eager and willing to grant it to you tonight. Or is your interest in Jesus for something else? For you, it's not hoping you'll kick the Romans out or kicking somebody else out. That was a very um, time-specific reason, wasn't it? That's not relevant to us today, the Romans ruling over Israel and Jerusalem or whatever. But for you, it may be something else. For you, it's you've been told, perhaps, or you've heard or you hope that if only you trust in Jesus, you'll have a much easier life. Because Christians, you see, never get ill. Uh, and Christians never have any problems. And everything goes well for Christians. Perhaps that's why you're interested, what your interest is in Jesus. Well, that's not the salvation he comes to bring. That will come. God will remove all suffering and pain and sorrow in some time. But he won't take it away now. In fact, becoming a Christian often adds to all that. Because you get opposition. And you begin to have an anxiety, as it were, or uh, a concern and anguish over unbelieving spouses and children and parents that you never had before. So sometimes becoming a Christian adds to your concerns and adds to the pain and trouble that being in this world brings. Christ offers to you tonight the salvation you really need. Because those other things are temporary. What you really need is for God to deal with the consequences of your rebellion and to change the factory setting of your heart so it no longer says rebellion but service. And you need that because you may have an easy life, an easier life than if you became a Christian. But as Psalm 73 tells us, you have a nice time for a while and you spend eternity in hell. Whereas when this real problem of a sinful heart is dealt with, you may have struggles and difficulties in this life, but you have a friend and a saviour to help you through it. And you have an eternity of bliss and joy in his presence. So yes, Christ tonight offers you salvation. But make sure you know what that salvation is. 
and recognize that it's not a deliverance from the troubles of this life or a promotion in this world, as sadly so many preachers would tell us. It's to deal with our sin. And then notice, they didn't want this kind of king, did they? They didn't want that kind of savior. They wanted someone to deal with the Romans, not their hearts. And they wanted a king who would increase their national prestige and their sense of pride. They didn't want a king who was going to come into their life and shake it up. They didn't want a king who was going to come into their very hearts and rule. Because we don't like that, do we? None of us like that by nature. Somebody in authority over us. We don't want that. And we rebel against all areas. We rebel against parents. We rebel against the police or whatever. We rebel against political leaders because we just don't like people having authority over us. Because we want to be kings and we want authority over our own lives. And that's a whole drift of our society, isn't it? That nobody can tell me anything and I'm in charge and you can't impose anything upon me, whether it be coronavirus restrictions or anything, because I'm king, you see. Now, we might want a ruler. Think of the queen. I don't, again, I don't, I'm not going to say whether I'm a royalist or not. I don't know what you are. That doesn't matter. But oh, we all love, oh, sorry, many people then love the Queen. Oh, what a wonderful image she is for, for Britain around the world and so on. But we don't want the King, Queen coming into our front room and telling us how to run our lives. We like her in a palace, in, in Buckingham Palace, giving us a good Im image around the world. But we don't want her on a practical level coming in and interfering with our lives. And that was the case with these people, you see. Well, they wanted Jesus to drive the Romans out and he'd be king now over a political kingdom for the prestige and the power of it all. But they don't want that Jesus interfering with their everyday lives. They don't want that Jesus coming right in. But that's the kind of kingdom he's brought to, he came to bring. That's the kind of kingdom Jesus establishes it. He establishes not in some far off building and you never really see him in your everyday life. He came to reign in you and over you. He came to take your life and to make it his. He came to be a real hands-on king. Yes, to bless, as we've been thinking, uh, you know, and, and to help, but also he will rule now. And your life is no longer your own. Your life is under the authority and direction of King Jesus. And he administers his kingly rule from his royal word. Oh, I don't want that. I don't want a, a king who actually gets into my life and says, no, things have got to change. That's repentance, isn't it? We don't want that. The R word, repentance. I don't want to change. I don't want to turn. But that's the kingdom Christ has come to bring. Perhaps you want, the way I put it is this, perhaps you want Jesus the comfort blanket, or many want Jesus the comfort blanket, the friend that we can cry to when things go wrong. Well, Jesus is, not a comfort blanket, but Jesus is a friend we can pour our heart out to and we can cast our burdens upon. But he's a king who reigns over us. Or come and help me, Jesus, when I'm struggling in the night, but leave me alone the following day. That's no good. 
Neither is Jesus what I call the fourth or the fifth emergency service. You know, you've got the three emergency services, police, ambulance, fire, and then the AA. Don't know whether you're with them for your car insurance. I'm not promoting them. But the AA uh, used to have on their advert, we are the fourth emergency service. Well, I sometimes say, as even as Christians, we want Jesus as the fifth emergency service. You know what I mean by that? They're only to be called upon when there's a problem, but you don't bother with them the rest of the time. Leave me alone. Let me get on with my life. But when I need you, when you can help me, I'll come calling. None of us pop into the police station, do we, and say, how are you getting on today? I brought some sandwiches for you. Or the, amb- you know, the, the local ambulances or the fire service or the AA. We only call them when we're in a fix and they can help us. Is that why you want Jesus? A comfort blanket to cry to in times of trouble? Or the fifth emergency service handy when you're in a fix and you need someone to sort it all out for you? Again, Jesus will come in time of trouble. But he's a king who rules in your life. And his word is supreme. And his commands have authority. Tonight, Jesus offers you salvation. He has come. He is the deliverer, the redeemer God has appointed. But it's redemption from yourself. It's redemption from your sin. It's redemption from your nature. Is that what you want from Jesus? Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I'm in a dreadful state before God because I've rebelled against him and I'm under his wrath and I deserve every drop of it. And I've got no hope. I can't help myself. The pastor can't help me. Nobody can help me. But Jesus, I've been told and I believe you can help me. And I believe that on the cross, you paid the price for my sin. And I believe that you answered for my rebellion and my wretchedness before God. And so please, Jesus, take me. And bring me before the Father and say, Father, forgive this one. Because I paid for their sin on the cross. And you say, Lord, I want to change then. I I want to be different. I don't want to carry on in that way of living. I want to be a new person. I want to walk a new path. I want to embrace your ways. And I want to be able to say with the psalmist, I love your law. I don't just obey your law because I'm afraid of the consequences if I don't. I just love the very law itself. I see it as beautiful and praiseworthy and altogether desirable. Is that the salvation you want? Because at the moment, if you're not a Christian, you haven't got that. You are condemned before God and you are stuck with a rebellious heart. But the salvation Jesus will give is dealing with the consequences of your sin before God and you change your rebellious heart. And do you really want Jesus to reign over you? Say, Lord, take this life, take my life, and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Lord, you have my life. You're my king. You're entitled to it. I don't know why you'd want it, really, because it isn't anything special. But if you want it, you must have it, because you are the king. Uh, And I will come to you in time of trouble. And I thank you, Lord, your ear is always open to my cry. And I thank you, Lord, that you will weep with me as I weep. And I thank you that you are so kind and gentle. But, Lord, I'm not going to treat you as just as a shoulder to cry on or somebody to get me out of a fix. But I'm going to completely submit to you in everyday living. 
I'm going to come under your authority, not just when the word is preached on a Sunday, but in work, in the family, in my friendship groups, in everything. You're going to rule now. You're going to reign. I'm going to obey you. You're not just a friend to be sought. You're a king to be obeyed. If that's the kind of kingdom you want, a kingdom that brings love and joy and peace, then that's what he's come to bring. And he offers it to you tonight. So he'll be your saviour and he'll be your king. But make sure you understand what that salvation is. Make sure you understand what that kingdom is. Because he won't offer you any other kind. This is what he's offering. This is what he commands you to embrace tonight. And if you come to him, you will find him ready to bring you into his kingdom. And you will find him ready to rescue you from your rebellious heart. I pray that he would do that tonight for any in need of that. And that work for those of us who are Christians, it's an ongoing work of his delivering us and reigning over us. May we seek more and more of his rule and his salvation in our lives. Well, we're going to sing 225 to finish. It's a hymn I always like to have uh, to finish Palm Sunday because it sort of sets everything up ready for Good Friday. Ride on, ride on in majesty. 225, and we'll stand to sing from our hearts in our heads.
him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>